verse number one is where we'll pick up this morning. If you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. And we'll just take up the first two verses this morning. But in all honesty, we will just take up verse one for the sermon. And in Philippians chapter one and verse number one, we read these words. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray once more. Father, we come to you once again. Um, I pray boldly into the throne room of grace by virtue um, solely of the grace of God, particularly in Christ Jesus. We know that it's only through the veil that we could enter in with such boldness. Yet at the same time, Father, it's not pretense, I hope, um, but um, a humility, Father, that has provoked us to know our need of you, and particularly, Father, our need of Christ. Father, we need the Spirit of God this morning to make that reality known to us. We need to recognize, Father, that outside of him we are nothing. Thus, um, help us this morning, Father, to, to wholly cling to him, whether we're fathers or mothers, single men, single women, Father, children, little boys, little girls, older, younger Father, may the word of God this morning, by the power of the Spirit, minister to each of our hearts in a way that transforms us by the glory of God. Father, may we see Jesus Christ high, holy, and lifted up, and may it bring us low that we may be exalted in due time, trusting in that great promise, Father, that if we were to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt us in due time. And we know that that's true, Father, because you did it with your Son. And if we are in him, Father, then we are... Um, soon to follow, not only in this life, but ultimately in the next. So, Father, we approach your word now, I pray, with that same humility, seeking after Christ, that you may conform us to the very image of your Son. We pray, Father, that at the end of the sermon, that you would accomplish eternal things in our hearts and souls. And, Father, we commend ourselves to you, because we know that outside of Christ, we can do nothing. So help us to lean on him in the next hour. Remove distractions, Father. And give us a moment of time to where we can just feed on Christ. And may we rest in him this morning. And may that be the ultimate pattern of our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. (coughs) Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. I know that several of you are visiting with us this morning. um, And we are thankful to have you with us. Um, Last week we began a study in opening up the book of Philippians. We've taken it as our task here at Christ Bible Church over the next six to eight months. Really only God knows how long it'll take us to go verse by verse through the book of Philippians. Um, We've given ourselves over to this type of teaching and preaching for a number of reasons, um, particularly to honor God by knowing what the whole council says. That yes, we'll take times of uh, pastoral issues and preach subjects and series, but we desire to have the entirety of the council of God. Um, Thus, we commit our primary diet in teaching and preaching to um, just verse by verse laboring through books of the Bible. Um, and we finished, for the most part, Mark in that gospel, and it was glorious over about two years. And now we've taken up the book of Philippians. And last week we began to um, open it up by focusing really in on verse 3 and verse number 5. And springboarding to the beginning of the church, Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you for the fellowship in verse number 5 in the gospel from the first day until now. Thus we went back to Acts chapter number 16 really see the beginning of the of the church there at Philippi. And we understood after laboring through Acts 16, particularly in Acts 17, um, initially, that it was really um, the fellowship there born at Philippi um, in Macedonia was a result of God's sovereign grace upon their lives. Um, Paul didn't want to go there initially. He desired to go to Asia and then Bithynia. And due to closed doors, God opened one in Macedonia. And it was the very Spirit of God that closed those doors and opened the one um, in Europe. And may I just say, I didn't mention it last week, but we too should thank God for that. 
that it is through the gospel reaching that area that it made it to North America and the United States that we live in today. That if it was not for the spirit wrought um, grace of God in directing the Apostle Paul to Macedonia, um, then we practically would not have the gospel today. Um, but Jesus Christ desires the nations and the spirit of God takes the man of God where he desires to go. And through closed doors and open doors, he opens ones to Macedonia and particularly there at Philippi. Um, the, the, the Apostle Paul submits and yields to the Spirit of God and they leave Troas, float in a boat across the sea and land there. Within the first couple of weeks, God opens the door of a heart, uh, the door of the heart of a young woman by the name of Lydia. And he does something similar with a demon-possessed girl and a Roman jailer. There's no doubt in my mind that there were other people saved while, during a short period while Paul was there at Philippi. And after he opens the door to Macedonia, opens the door to Philippi, opens the door of the heart of Lydia and the Roman jailer, um, Lydia and the Roman jailer then open the doors of their homes with hospitality. The immediate fruit of the gospel is a desire to be with God's people in the fellowship of God's people and under the word. And the apostle Paul then leaves Luke there to minister to them for years, raising up leadership within that congregation. And, a, and an intimate relationship was born there among them that was hospitable and giving that last even to this day. Ten to twelve years later, the Apostle Paul finds himself in a Roman prison um, for the sake of the gospel. And Epaphroditus, one of the faithful men from Philippi, travels three to four hundred miles to minister to the Apostle Paul. Not only emotionally, spiritually, but materially. And to be a blessing to him in one of the most difficult times, seemingly, circumstantially, of his life. Um, we learn that there he's in Philippians chapter 1, he's in chains. We learn that he mentions in another portion of Philippians that um, he is possibly to be poured out as a drink offering. That in this Roman prison, um, under the jury and judge of Rome, he may very well lose his life. Yet, what we find in the book of Philippians, amazingly, is not him sulking, not him working with Epaphroditus to make a way out, to overturn the jury and the judge. He's not trying to sneak around the charge from a Roman perspective. Actually, what you see is exactly the opposite. You see a very intimate letter written to Philippi, um, with a spirit of the utmost joy in the midst of his circumstances. And whenever you're studying a book of the Bible, and I would encourage all of you to be studiers of the word. And one of the reasons I said that we preach and teach like this is, is so that we can teach the whole counsel of God. And in some sense, distill the meaning of the text and try to apply it to your lives um, from a pastoral perspective. But one of the practical reasons that we preach and teach this way is so that you too will know how to approach the word of God. That pastors and preachers and teachers in Sunday school um, are, are in some sense a special office. Um, but it's not a special office in superiority. We are simply to be the examples. And that what is required of me and Pastor Robert and other elders in churches is to be an example to you. That you would know how to lead your homes. You would know how to witness and be an example of the gospel how to honor God, and um, how to approach the Word. That you should not only be reading your Bibles broadly, but you too should be studying the Word of God to know what God's Word says so that you can lead your own, govern your own soul by the power of the Spirit, but also govern the lives of others. And disciple. So I don't have a family. Then seek to disciple someone else. A friend, a co-worker, a family member. We should all be discipling people to disciple others. You should... Um, not only be saved, but constantly being sanctified in such a way that it gives you a burden and a desire to reach the world with the gospel. That is what the Apostle Paul did. Paul taught Timothy. Timothy taught faithful men so that faithful men could teach others. <clears throat> so when we approach a, a Bible or when we approach a book in the Bible, such as Philippians, um, you may want to take another book of the Bible. And say, I'm going to read the word broadly this year. But at the same time, I'm going to adopt a book that's mine for 2023 coming up. 
Maybe Ephesians, maybe something smaller, maybe something larger. But I'm going to seek to know what this is. With the ultimate goal that I'm going to disciple someone else in this book. I'm going to take what God has wrought in my own heart. And it's going to overflow in such a way that it spills onto my children and onto my wife, onto my church and onto unbelievers. That the Christian life is not to be contained within an individual, but it is to be um, ministered within the community of the saints and spread to the nations. And it happens that way through public proclamation as well as private discipleship. And one of the things that you want to do whenever you study a book of the Bible, there's a number of things. There's a lot of wrong ways to, to, to approach it, but at the same time, there's a lot of right ways to approach it. There's not one set um, process that is exactly right. And if you do otherwise, then you're, you're wrong. But things to know are things like, you know, who wrote the book? Why did they write the book? Who's the recipient of the book? What's the purpose of the writing? And another great question is, you know, what are the themes within the book? Um, and that can be different than the purpose, although it can overlap. And whenever you read commentators and Christians throughout history, what you begin to find is that one of the great themes in this book, uh, this book to, Philipp to Philippi from the Apostle Paul, um, is the theme, as I already mentioned, joy. Joy. And it even takes another flavor, another uh, intense nuance whenever you begin to realize that the joy that is wrought in the Apostle Paul and spills out to Epaphroditus and ultimately to the church at Philippi is that this man is on the chopping block. He's under the guillotine and there is no natural reason why he should be excited about much of anything right now but focusing on saving his own neck. But he's not. You know, you read the book and you find out that even in chains, that this man has the utmost joy and his ultimate desire is to honor Christ. But even amidst his own joy, um, he desires that those at Philippi have that same joy. Now, Paul is his desire is not self-serving in this book. Um, but he's rejoicing in what God's accomplishing in Philippi and desires for them to have it all the more. You know, if you were to read, for example, in chapter 1, verse number 12, you would read of him. He says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. You go on to read and he says that there are people that are afflicting him by preaching a false gospel or preaching with pretense to afflict the apostle Paul. You know, um, he says, the former preached Christ in verse 16 from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? He asked the question. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. You go on to chapter 2 and verse number 15, and you find that he's in Philippi, he's in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation. And he says that you... As a result of that, are to shine as lights in the world. Then he goes on in verse 17 and says, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, meaning if I am to go and give my life. In previous, in chapter 1, he says, To live is Christ, to die is gain. He's not afraid of death. And he says, If I go to my death, I am glad, verse 17, and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Because he's excited that as a result of what's happened there at, at in Rome, the gospel's going out. It's being preached regardless. God is accomplishing what is. And because he's there, um, the gospel goes forth. And it goes forth even to the point in, in, the, um, in the farewell address, he says in verse 21 of chapter 4, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with you, with me, greet you. All the saints greet you. He's talking about with himself, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. He says that, that, that the gospel has went forth in such a way that Caesar's household in, has been affected through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He's saying, people, I'm here and people are coming to Christ. And if I'm to be poured out, know that that will not hinder the gospel, but rejoice with me, church. Why? Because Christ is exalted. He goes on in chapter 3 and verse number 2. After he, um, he, he gives a warning of them uh, to beware of dogs, false teachers, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, he says. And then he goes on to just recount all of his accolades and all of his qualifications. And he says, listen, guys, they're, they're, they're a pile of manure without Christ. 
And he rejoices in what Christ is accomplishing. That, that, that it led him, even thinking about the evil workers and the evildoers and the legalism that's being propagated, it led him to look at the gospel and glory and the character and the grace of God in his own life. And then in chapter 4 and verse 15, he recounts that, that those that are at Philippi, he says, Now you Philippians know that, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. You only. So what we have here is a picture of a man in prison to the possibility of standing trial and being publicly executed in the midst of a crooked and a perverse world, not only in Rome, but also there in Philippi. You'd think everyone would be rallying around him because he's innocent, but you have Christians afflicting him while he's in jail. And only one church during this time supported him. I mean... Is there much more of a bleak picture that you can paint? The Apostle Paul, the minister to the Gentiles, God's accomplishing mighty things through him. And not only is the world against him, but the church is rallying against him. And if they're not rallying against him, they've abandoned him. Um, yet you will not steal his joy. Because his joy is ultimately not based in the circumstances. You know, joy is an inner state of contentment and thankfulness to God for the abundant grace and goodness towards us in Christ. Godly joy is marked by hope in the promise and promises of God concerning our salvation and future with Him. That regardless of what happens circumstantially to the apostle, he seems to be in such a place internally that he is totally 100% unaffected. By the circumstances. And he just has a heart. That abounds. With the utmost joy. In Christ. But not only can there be one theme. That permeates the book. But there can be multiple threads. You know. I think Pastor Robert and I. As well as others have discussed this. You know. Um, that joy most people would um, account to be the ultimate theme. Throughout the book of, of Philippians. But I agree with him that, that joy is a fruit. It's a fruit of something else. You know, it's a, it's a frustrating thing, isn't it? Whenever you see the joy in another person and you hear a sermon saying be joyful, yet at the same time you know that that is some days farther than you. It's without your reach and that you can try to muster up a smile in the midst of a crowd and you can put on your religious regalia as you come to church and you can sing the songs and yet at the same time um, there, is no, there is anxiety in your heart. There is a depressed state and all you're doing is putting on a mask. Why? You would give everything that you have, knowing how blessed you truly are and the truth that just continues to preach against you day in and day out. Why? Because you know that you should be joyful, yet at the same time, you know that you're not. And a simple, be joyful and rejoice, just complicates the matter all the more. The real question is, is how does Paul have this joy? I'm not here to tell you this morning, simply be joyful. But to ask the question, how is it that Paul could have so much joy? That it is the fruit of something else. It is the fruit of a commitment to Christ. It is a fruit of Christ Himself. It is reveling in that glory. It is an understanding of the gospel such that the joy is a fruit, is the fruit of a relationship with Him. As I read through Philippians again and again, I think that one additional theme that cannot be forgotten, um, that, that, that is essential to the theme of joy, is the theme of humility. Humility. It's interesting that when you study this book, just four short chapters, the word is nowhere to be found. But as you trek through it slowly, taking notes and highlighting words, Dare I say, meditating upon those scriptures and upon Paul and Philippi, dare I say you'll find no more clear instruction on humility than in the book of Philippians. 
You see it in Paul's disposition as he's imprisoned and his submission to the sovereignty of God. You see it in his thankfulness for the Philippians and the God's work in them. You see it in his appreciation for the work of the gospel in them and his own life. You see it in his contentment in, in Christ regardless of the situation. And you see the clearest expression instructionally of it read for us this morning by our brother, Pastor Robert, out of Philippians chapter 2, describing our Lord's humble servant to service to the Father and us. And thus we are commended in Philippians chapter 2 to have this mind which was in Christ Jesus. And he says, fulfill my joy, church, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. And that bleeds on the pages of Philippians. Paul's not concerned with himself. He's concerned with what? With them. With Why? Because he's concerned with glorifying Christ. And that's why he says in, in verse 2, um, I want you to be like-minded. He says in other places, I want you to be um, following my example. To have my mind. What mind is that? The mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That the great call in the book of Philippians is to a life of humility in which I guarantee will cultivate joy in your life. I commit to you this morning that the theme of joy in this letter to the Philippians is a reflection of the humble heart of the Apostle Paul at the time of his writing. A joy that abounded regardless of circumstances because of a right and humble understanding of himself in the sight of God in relationship to his ministry that God gave him. And with the utmost pleasure, he submitted to it. And that's why God used him so. That's why God took him to the ends of the earth. That's why God um, filled him with his glory. And that too, if we are to find joy in Christ, it will only be found in lowly submission to him. That the Christian life is born in and sustained only. It will only flourish in humility to Christ. This is essential. And if there's anything that I want you to take away from the book of Philippians, I think that that's it. I'm not going to stand up here and beat you because you don't have joy and say, have joy, rejoice regardless. Um, but I will call you to humility as you labor in for and look at Christ. To have that mind that is essential on many days, on every day to cultivate that type of heart that God may give us um, a little insight into what it means. And that's what we'll do this morning. As essential as it is, it is on many days difficult to cultivate. So may God give us that insight this morning as we look into the humble heart of the Apostle Paul. And it begins in chapter 1 and verse number 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a tendency to want to just skip over the introduction like we do a genealogy, and y'all know that. <laughs> you know, numbers. I mean, more, more, devote, more Bible reading plans die in numbers than most other books in the Bible. You know that. <laughs> if, you don't make, if you make it past Leviticus by the grace of God, you generally die spiritually in numbers. It's just hard. It's difficult. <laughs> You know, and it takes a truly spiritual man to labor through that. And I encourage you to do that. I'm a, you know, we, we joke, but it's true. Yet at the same time, we need to recognize that God gives all of his word for a reason and that all of it is instructive, it's doctrinal, and it is to make us the men of God that we are to be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Uh, and the problem is, is that they seem um, um, preliminary, particularly introductions. You know, just kind of obligatory. To get to the real stuff. You know, nothing more than just um, obligatory remarks. But I would urge you this morning, as well as in your daily life, to, 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 to warn against that. And in fact, I would say that it would be detrimental to our walk because all of God's word contributes to the growth of a believer. 
There is particularly in this letter a uniqueness. And that God used initially in the, in the people at Philippi. And for the last 2,000 years in the plan of God. And we should not simply pass over the words as if they're unnecessary. In other words, it would be detrimental to think. That the introduction of these letters is in some way inferior to the rest of the letter. And quickly skim over them to get to the good stuff. That this portion is imperative. And oftentimes introductions, particularly of Paul, and will lay out themes that are found all throughout the book. And set a foundation to the rest of the book. You know, I get letters all the time. I get emails. And some of them I never read. You know why? Because I don't know who they're from. You know, I, very rarely will I take information seriously unless I can, you know, take into account the source of it. And I don't have time to read everything and to listen to all people, you know. And foundationally, I need to know who it's from. And if I know who it's from, then I know how to receive it. Um, and that's the same here. Paul introduces himself in different ways to set the foundation and tone of the letter that it may be received. And oftentimes this is what Paul does. So, so, so this, God uses what we might call a common courtesy here to lay a foundation and propagate what we should deem some of the most weighty and central truths in the faith. So in the introduction, I want to argue that you see in verse number one the humility of this man which I think is key to the entire epistle and ultimately to the joy that we find in the apostle. That number one, we see Paul's humility in the manner in which he presents himself. How does Paul see himself? How does he view himself? How does he identify, if you will? Where is his identity found, you know? The way in which a man or a woman presents himself in an introduction can tell you a lot about how a man, a lot about a man, about how a man thinks about himself, about how a man thinks about others. You know, I had lunch with a man one time, first time we'd ever met. He was thinking about coming to our church from another church, you know, um, and after telling me about all of his gifts and all of his strengths and all of his, all that he had done, you know, for the ministry somewhere else in the conversation, he says, you know, if I do end up there at Christ Bible Church, it'll be just such a great blessing to your church. It uh, scared me to death. <laughs> the guy had never done anything wrong, it seemed. But um, he was offering himself. Um, pride is a murderer. Now, yes, there is a time to revel in our giftings and our callings, but at the same time, we've recognized that it is holy. We must recognize, just as the Apostle Paul, as we looked last week, and we see even in this introduction, that it is only by the grace of God that we're anything. You know? Philippians 3. Um, so, so how does Paul identify? How does he see himself? There's a number of ways in which Paul could have introduced himself. And that's why I referenced there Philippians chapter number 3. Actually, Paul will include that. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 3 actually has a list of qualifications that extend farther than any one person living probably at that time. And he, and he could boast more at what God had accomplished in his life than most congregations and men combined. He could have started out his letter like this, greeting subjects. From the great Apostle Paul. Apostle, if you don't know, Apostle to the Gentiles, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, an Israelite, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Here's the um, ministerial list of places I've gone and churches I've planted, nations I've reached. He could list the hardships and perils that he endured, such as in 2 Corinthians and as well as in Philippians, he could have recounted that the only reason that they exist from a worldly perspective was because of his ministry. But he doesn't. You may be wondering, but he does do that sometimes. He does. For example, Colossians 1, 1, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, he, he recognizes and recalls to them, calls to them and commends to them as apostolic authority. He does the same in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Why? Because Paul knows what he needs to be for the ministry of other men. When his apostolic authority is needed because correction is needed, he utilizes it. But when it's not, he doesn't. He is to men what he needs to be for the glory of God and to, to, to propagate the gospel. He doesn't have an axe to grind with me and he's not out to make a name for himself. He's simply a servant. 
And because of the intimate relationship, I believe, that Paul has to the church at Corinth or at Philippi, there was no need for correction. There was no need for questioning of the validity of his apostleship. But it seems to be exactly the opposite. They seem to be fully supported of the Paul and his ministry that God gives him. And he, so he bypasses any reference to it and presents himself in his, as much uh, the most profound, unique and precious way as he makes reference to his position and relationship to Christ and Christ alone. So as we look, we look at Paul and Timothy, bondservants, Jesus Christ. We see the humility of Paul and how he identifies and how he sees him in respect to Christ and his kingdom. And how does he see himself? But as a bondservant, a slave. The term there, it literally means servant, bondservant, or slave. One writer writes, he says, traditionally the word's been translated servants or bondservants. Although doulos is normally translated servant. The word does not denote or it does not bear the connotation of a free individual serving another. Um, BDAG notes that servant or, or slave is largely confined to biblical translation in earlier American times. In normal usage at the present time, the two words are carefully distinguished. Um, the most accurate, he says, translation is bondservant, sometimes found in the ASV for doulos, and that it often indicates one who sells himself into slavery for another. But as this is archaic, he says, few today understand its force, end quote. Essentially, what that guy is saying is, is that servant or bondservant has traditionally been used instead of slave. Because in our present day context, there's a great negative connotation to slave. Servant has been more so utilized because most people don't have a concept of the Old Testament um, ideal of bondservant. But it's probably more accurate to say bondservant, a servant that's bound to another. Which is noted often indicates one who sells himself into slavery to another. That that's the idea here. Slave in the sense of a bondservant or one who sells himself into slavery of another. And I know that the concept of slavery has riddled their minds. With both nasty and negative connotations. And let me just say rightfully so. After all, it's, it was Christians. You know, at the forefront of abolishing slavery. You know, if you look back to Europe, if you look into, you know, America, what you find is that Christianity, men like William Wilberforce, these are the men at the forefront. Why? Because, um, because slavery in the sense that, that we know it today is an abuse of mankind and is a great sense, sin, not only toward man, but toward the God who created them in his very image. So when we think of the word slavery, we think of a modern day abuse of man and forced subjugation. Um, someone who's been against, uh, uh, against his will and made the property of another. We think physically, mentally, emotionally, sexually abused and used. Manipulated service. When we think of slavery, we think of those uh, of one who must do what they're told to do because of external constraints. We think of cruelty, inhumanity. Need I go on? But this is not the biblical view of a bond servant or a bond slave. Although I must warn you, even at that, this doesn't sit well with most people. Why? Because I'm not here to soften the word this morning. It is slavery. I'm here to tell you that God is clear. You're either a slave to sin, John 8, 34, or you are a slave to Christ. A slavery to Christ is Christianity. It is church. It is the people of God. It is a name and a title that Paul, Timothy, James, John, David, Elijah, Moses were not afraid to bear such that all of them record within Scripture, in the Psalms, throughout the New Testament, that it is a title in which they are proud to bear. It is a title in which more than most others, Paul himself in many places ascribes to himself. He wants the world to know. He wants the church to know that, that he is many things, but at one level, he is a slave to Christ. That that is Christianity. The basic definition is a bondman, a man in a servile condition as a slave. Metaphorically, one who gives himself up to another's will, devoted to another to disregard of to the disregard of his own interests. Like, isn't that not in some sense the call of the gospel? Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What if I told you that that verse, although it sounds negative, only sounds negative because you think more highly of yourself than you ought. That this call is only offensive because pride is rooted in our hearts. And we've convinced ourselves of the lie of the ages that we are ultimately the God of our own lives and have the right to govern our own souls. And that the truth is, is that when you were created for a glorious purpose, more grand than this world could ever offer, and contained within this call, yes, is death. But in it too, is life everlasting. Not only to begin with our last breath, but here and now. I imagine myself as a little boy oftentimes growing up in the projects with all sorts of sins surrounding me. I think of so many men and women, young boys and girls, whom I'd built relationships with, that I look back and they've already been consumed by drugs, by alcohol, by harmful lifestyles. I'm only 38 and I can tell you too many people who've lost their lives because of a self-destructive behavior like that. I remember as a young man, those men and boys even glorying in those things. Loving those things. Me as well. Making those things sound virtuous. You know? Not realizing that we were slaves to those things. We were lying to ourselves. You know? It was almost as if you weren't a man if you weren't doing those things. You know? You weren't giving yourself over to certain things. We were lying to ourselves, not realizing that those things controlled us. Now imagine a man coming by, those young men saying, leave all of this and work for me. You know, I'm a king in a colony. And while service will be difficult, it will be the most rewarding that this life has to offer. Like, leave it and you'll spend most of your time on the seashores and in the mountains. Yes, you'll be building and taking dominion. It'll be hard and there'll be long days, but but there will be no turning back. It's me or nothing. You leave that, those things, and you come work for me. You'll be servants, yes, but the servants that you will be will not be like the slaves of this land, but like kings and priests compared to the life that you're used to. Leave it and love me. Leave a life of self-destruction and finally live. How as slaves of sirs and yes, but as slaves and servants, you'll live like kings compared to what you live like now. That's Christianity. Yet even that illustration falls inherently short of what God offers you in this call. For a Jewish man who understood the idea of the Old Testament Scriptures and the biblical narrative and the concept of slavery, this would not have been a life of drudgery, but an honor and a privilege. Men like Moses and Joshua 14, David, um, the king of the nation of Israel, the greatest nation in all the land, in Psalm 89 is ascribed a bondservant, a slave of God. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, rec- uh, representing all of the prophets in 2 Kings 10.10 10, is called a bondservant of God, a servant of the Lord. Their great calls, their great equipping, their service, they were all built not upon their own skill, intellect, academic um, uh, capability, their own abilities in and of themselves. They were built on the foundation of servanthood and they served the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Yes, slavery in in a modern day abusive sense is subjugation, forced subjugation is one of the most horrible atrocities in all the world and throughout the ages. And it has plagued our minds and even the ideal of serving God. Um, if they were to remember that if they were to use, they, to be used mightily, it would not be in the glorification of themselves, but in the service of the Most High King. And to understand that the concept of the biblical bond slave, you have to understand. Number one, the concept of a slave as the property of another, of his master, duly purchased in order to function as a slave. Number two, existing only to the will of his master. And number three, add to those things, because those things probably offend you now. You know Why? Because we're taught in America that we are individualistic. We are the captain of our own ship. I mean, you can identify as a cat. 
and carry a litter box around with you. You can have a dog bowl and you're a German shepherd and people will respect that and bend over and pet you. And it's ridiculous. We're not the captain of our own ships. Um, we were created for a purpose. And the only thing that will have any eternal value um, is to, to yield and submit to that as a slave of Jesus Christ. That we exist only to the will of our master and that we are slaves that are, that have been not only created for his glory, but duly purchased in order to function as that. In the other sense, we were created in his image and that, 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 that slavery to Christ, that, that taking dominion over all the earth was lost in our own sin and we became slaves of that sin. Yet Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter two, enters in, humbles himself, becomes in every point like us, the book of Hebrews says. Why? So that he could buy us back out of the slave market as a slave in the Old Testament and set us truly free to finally do and live as we were created to do. And even in a greater fashion now, knowing the grace of God that even the angels um, desire to look into but cannot. That even in all of their righteousness and in the very presence of God as they bow and cover their eyes, you and I know more in a sense about God than even they will ever know, giving all of eternity to search out the facets of a holy God. Thus He buys us back by His own blood. Why? So that we would finally be that which we ought to be. And He raises those men up not only as slaves, but also as kings and priests in a royal nation, a people um, who were not His people. Thus, on, on those two points, we add to number three that such a relationship exists in a voluntary manner and even born out of a constraint by love to that master. That if you understand that, you'll begin to understand the concept of a bond slave to Jesus Christ. At the heart of the concept of Christianity and Christian slavery and a slave to Christ and Paul's identification is the recognition that the slave is the property of another and that he exists solely to do the will of another. And wonder of wonders, this slave glories in that relationship and pursues it as the goal of his life. There is no external subjugation. There is no abuse of the Father or the Son or the Spirit. The Gospel is magnified in his heart such that when he sees the glory and the majesty of Christ, there is nothing else that he could ever do with his life. And the gospel goes forth and shows him himself in relationship to a holy God and Jesus Christ, the gracious and righteous one. What else could we do other than follow such a magnificent king and savior? That's why the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your temple is a body of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 7.23, You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men, he says. Why, under the constraint of love. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ compels us, constrains us, not the love of Christ in the sense that, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm virtuous and I'm just overflowing with love for Christ. But it is the love that Christ has for me in giving His own Son that would compel me to serve Him. You know, it's not Jesus Christ coming in and taking over captive in a negative way and, 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 and men against their will, um, uh, following Him for the rest of their life as some common day slave chattel. It is Jesus Christ, King of kings, um, showing Himself forth in the public proclamation of the gospel or in the majesty of the Word of God as Christ is proclaimed to our hearts. And in that new heart that's given, we, we see the life that is in Christ and we run after him and we spend running after arrives and being spending and being spent running after him for the rest of our days and which finally will give up the ghost and finally run without exhaustion when we see him face to face and we are like him and finally give him the honor and glory and worship that is due his name in another world and in another time when we are finally made in a way that where we are not exhausted with his glory paul says you know, we don't serve, serve Christ out of content. We serve Christ because the love that he has compels us because we judge thus. That if one died for all, then all died and he died for all. And those who live should no longer live for themselves. 
but for him who died for them and rose again. That the argument goes like this, that we should make a judgment this morning. That the reality is, is that if he died for one, that if one died for all, and all died, and that if he died for all and he died for me, and I should no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me and rose again for me, that this type of slavery that Paul is referring to here is not slavery by external constraint, but it is constraint nonetheless. It is not um, slavery in the sense of manipulated um, subjugation, but it is in some sense slavery nonetheless. It is not out of fear of a rod that will bludgeon us to death. Matthew 20, 25, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. We don't rule like that. Why? But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to, first, for, to, to, desires to be a first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And give him a, give his life a ransom for many. We don't tyrannically rule over our homes, over the church, or over man. Why? Um, because we're not like the pagans and the heathens who don't know God. You know? That leadership is born in humility and it manifests itself in service. Why? Philippians chapter 2. It is slavery. It is a commitment, though, that flows out of the wonder and the amazement that if one died for all, that if he died for me, then I should no longer live for myself. I should deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. And that's why when you ask me today, did you come? I say, yes, but I came because he showed himself to me. What other what other decision could I make? Once you see the majesty and the beauty and the glory and the grace and the compassion and you look in that mirror of the law of liberty and you see yourself totally depraved apart from God living in your own rebellious way. What other thing could you do when he says, take my cross or you know, he says, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I am so exhausted, Lord. It's so hard to live in my own flesh. Laboring after myself, trying to make you proud of me, trying to serve uh, myself, trying to, 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 to live in a way that's pleasing, to earn my own salvation. And Jesus Christ stands there when the gospel was preached as a 15 year old boy. And later in my life, it was more clearly proclaimed in my own heart that you are to come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I need rest, Lord. Because I can't do this anymore. I can't find my way up. I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to please you. You know? I could work all of my days as a moral kid, my own self-righteousness. The world looks around you, you know, and all of the, all of your family and all of your friends come and they pat you on the back. What a fine young man. No, I was not. But God did give me enough sense to know that He was real and I needed Him. And He came in the Gospel and showed me the way. And He showed me the Christ. That if one died for all, the Son, you should live with Him. And you can have that peace. And you can have that joy. But you won't find it in yourself. You won't find it in good works. You won't find it in self-righteousness. And you won't find it in religion. You'll find it in Me. And that's why His commandments are not grievous. That's why His yoke is easy and His burden is light. That is why um, you, you, you take the rest of your life and everything that you've ever done, like the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, and says, I did a, great, a lot of great things. I have a lot of accolades and a lot of wonderful qualifications that the rest of the world would come and they would bow down before the Pharisee of the Pharisees and say, teach me it all. And I tell you, it's just dung. It's manure. It's a pile of worthlessness apart from Christ. He says, if you'd give me just the opportunity to, to give it all up, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, then I would give it all. And He did. You know? That's what Paul's telling them here. That's what Paul means. Paul and all of his accolades and all of his qualifications could have came to them on that great day, could have written to them and quoted everything, but he does not. And you say, but I thought the scriptures tell us that we're kings, you know. You know, we're priests. We're royalty. 
Christ even calls us brother and friend. Like, aren't those more pleasurable? Yes, those are. And I like those better. And it's true that Christ identifies us as such, and we revel in that. But the key to enjoying such pleasures in, in the, is in the, in the humility of being pleased simply to be a slave. And if He makes us those things, then so be it. You know? But at the end of the day, um, I'm fine with just being a third row galley slave. You know, not the captain of the ship somewhere hidden in the dark, pushing the kingdom of God along. And I realize and we should recognize that if God saves us to do that, um, then we have entered into a position that we were not worthy of and should honor and glorify him for that and that alone. That this is true humility. Yes, God ascribes to us certain titles, but the question of humility is not what does necessarily God always say about us, but what do we say about ourselves? It's the view of self. You know, this is true humility. Yes, Paul is many things and he uses it when necessary to get his message across. Um, But at the same time, when it's not necessary, he brings it to the most basis of recognitions and acknowledgements. And he says, boys, church, I'm just I'm nothing but a slave. This is true humility. Humility, though, is not groveling like a worm paralyzed in service because you're unworthy. No. I struggle with that, you know. Let me just be 100% honest with you. Um, Out of all the sins I struggle with, I think humility is the most. And that may surprise you. How many people I come up and they, they come up to me and they say, one of the things we appreciate is your humbleness. Um, I don't say that to discount what you may think. I say that to say that that is the struggle of my life, you know, and that we must be careful to recognize true humility, particularly in our own lives. Why? Because true humility is born out of the heart and you can only truly know yours. Before you could ever serve another, Jesus instructs us to get the beam out of our own eye before we could ever think of getting the speck out of our brother's. First, we must deal with ourselves and our own pride. Listen, if you'll ever be a help to anyone else, if you ever hope to be a blessing to another, to be a servant of others, to be a slave to others, Paul was a slave to other men. You know why? Because Paul was first a slave to Christ. I love it. Um, All throughout the book, Paul's not concerned with himself. He's concerned with others. Isn't that right? I love this in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number um, 17. After he recounts the Philippians giving to him. And they're the only one. This is what the Paul says. He says, for even in Thessalonica, verse 16, you sent. Um, you did once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift. I love this. But I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. You know. He says that even in my receipt. As Epaphroditus comes. I'm thankful Epaphroditus came. Because Epaphroditus needed it. I didn't. Philippians, the church at Philippi, you need it. That in the giving, you're most like Christ because He gave for us. And I would never restrain the gift of service. I'll always receive it, but not necessarily. Why? Because I've learned how to be content. I've learned how to be abased. And I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to handle everything. When I have nothing, I still know that I have everything. And I need you to know that. I need you to be joyful. I need you to be content. I want you to understand. I want you to fellowship with God through the act of of service. That's true humility. It's a loss of care for oneself. That one of the great dangers of Christianity and one of the great dangers of Bible believing churches is to become a tabernacle, a tent, a dwelling place of hypocrites who in religious regalia and mechanical service serve only themselves. That that is one of the things that is ever before my mind as I step in a pulpit or behind a lectern or I wake up on a Sunday morning and I have to go to God often and I say, Father, not for my own glory, but for yours. Because by nature, I want the amens. By nature, I want the good jobs. By nature, I want the, you know, confidence in me. Why? Because by nature, I was a young, moral man and was very self-righteous. 
And I wanted to please others. And I love the accolades of men. And I can tell you that that is probably the source of the lack of joy in my life more than any other. Because I, I am not here to please men, but to please God. Why? Because I've lacked a humble heart on many occasions. And sought even the ministry like the Israelites, so that men may see me in public, hear the wonderful prayers, and listen to the fantastic sermons, and, and the eloquent speech. And I've asked God that if, that if I become a barrier, Lord, would you take that away from me? I don't want it anymore. Um, I can't hold it if that's the case. That this is, the, you know, um, a, a, a sin that I bear, and I think it's a sin that we all bear. You know? We are by nature's lover, lovers of ourselves, <clears throat> thinking we're the captain of our own ship, yet not realizing that we are simply slaves to sin. And that the King of all glory this morning comes to us and holds his hands out with the majesty and the glory of Christ and says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Matthew 5 Blessed that you are the poor in spirit. You know what that word blessed means? Happy. Joyful. Speaks of a contentment in the heart and a spiritual condition that cannot be wrought by circumstances. That this is the entrance into the Christian life and this is um, the means by which it will be sustained and thrive. It will only be in humble service to Jesus Christ and that will often manifest itself. In humble service one to another. Have you ever been truly humble? You know? I've wondered that in my own life. I've strived for it in some sense. But then it's like once you strive for it, it's gone. But God blessed me recently. As I sat before a man. Give me just a little sliver of heaven and a love for him that I don't know that I've had for many people. And I thought, God, if you just, if you'd help him understand, you could take my life, you know. Not to say that that's virtuous at all, I don't know. But in that moment, I stopped thinking about myself, stopped caring, started thinking about Christ. About what God could accomplish in that man's life. And thought, Lord, if my life could make him understand, I'd give it. You know? I don't know that I fellowshiped with Christ more in that moment. And I've asked God to give me that for all of you. But I could say with the Apostle Paul, truly, with a right heart, honest before God, you know? Um, I have such a love for my kinsmen according to the flesh that I would even be accursed if you'd just give me them for the glory of God. Father, give me true love. That love that was manifested in Christ Jesus who gave himself even to the point of death and that death is the cross. That love will only ever be born out of humility. And that humility will manifest itself as a slave of Christ. You know? Nothing more. Nothing less. And it may not be surprising this morning that I had three other points that I didn't get to. But two, that Paul reckoned, and I'll, we'll get to it next week, but um, that Paul too, you see his humility not only in his identification of himself, but also in his identification of the church. Um, he, he refers to Timothy as well as a bondservant. You know, Paul and Timothy were in a organizational structure where Paul was a father and Timothy was a son. Paul was a teacher and he was a learner. He was a master and Timothy was a, a an apprentice. Um, Paul was an apostle and Timothy was not. Yet here, at the most base level, he says, "Me and Timothy, we're just the same. We're just slaves in Christ." He refers to them both plurally, slaves in Jesus Christ. And then he refers to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Out of all the titles, he could so you, you not only learn something about a man by the way he introduces himself, but by the way and what he thinks of others. 
Um, he could have, he could have, um, again, poured out his status, his position over them. He could have looked at them like subjects, but you know, he says they're all saints. And in some sense, it's, it's, it's weird, isn't it? It's strange. Because most people today would say, Paul should have read it like this. Saint Paul to slave Philippi. But he doesn't. He says, slave Paul to saints at Philippi. That these people have a unique position in Jesus Christ. And in some way, um, a saint is the only way to say a glorified slave. Uh, because saints are set apart. That's what the term means. It's holy. It's to be set apart for a particular purpose. And another way, it's just a way, it's just a way to say that these guys are slaves as well, but they are in Christ holy and they're in a position to where, where they are pure in Him. Even apart from all of their differences, all of their different ethnicity, their social status, this or that. Now these people, I put them on par with me and they, and I am on par with them. We, we may have our differences and we may have our different callings, um, but we are essentially all the same. We are slaves and saints. We are slaves writing to slaves. You know? And we are workers of body, recognizing that we are unique and God uses each and every one of us to His own end. And if that's on the third row, just rowing away, never to be seen, or it's to lead men to battle. Know this, men, Timothy, we're the same. The saints at Philippi, you're the same. Live, glory, take dominion, spend, be spent for Jesus Christ. And if you remember, be remembered only for your service to him. That it reigns in this life and throughout the ages. Because that's all that really truly matters. You know? Paul and Timothy. Paul, who are you? Man, I'm just a slave. In Jesus Christ. Serving other slaves. And building a kingdom. Um, that is. That is otherworldly. I don't want to be a slave. Well, this slave is a king and a priest. Willing to abandon. The love and the accolades, and the glory, and the seemingless, self-identifying virtuous sins of this life, recognizing that the joy that it, I had in those cannot compare to the joy that I have in Christ. Thus, I am compelled and constrained. See, I don't want a life of slavery. I don't want any other life. Because it's in that that I find true purpose. Because in Him... I find Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the letter to the Philippians. Father, we revel in glory in the reality that is ever before us. Father, the Apostle Paul seems to be um, towers, stories above us all. Father, he seems unattainable to do such things such a point that on some days, naturally, it's, it's discouraging, Father. But I recognize it's only discouraging because I want the accolades myself. Father, I want other men to recognize me. I want other men to hold me up. I want other men to think greatly of me. But I have come to recognize that Paul was only as great as he was because he was willing and ready to be hidden at any moment that Christ may be seen in all of his glory. Father, you exalt those. Your promise is true that if we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that you will truly exalt us in due time, not only in the next life, but I trust in this. Father, why? Because it's those men willing to be hidden that won't steal the glory and crown of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that that is our hearts. Me as a pastor, I pray that for my brothers laboring alongside me. And I pray that for our children. Father, that we would not mask our pride with an external groveling and religious exercise. But Father, we would become servants of our children, servants of our wives, Father, servants of our community, servants of our congregation, Father, that when we wield authority, may we wield it in such a way, Father, that we lead in the service of Christ, not like the pagans or Gentiles. May our children see Christ 
gloriously, most gloriously displayed and are willing to spend and be spent for them, even at the cost of our own lives. Help us, Lord, not to love ourselves, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Father, but to meditate often upon Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 2, and that great scarlet thread that runs throughout all the scriptures. Father, may we regularly think on that, that we may not think more of ourselves than we ought. Father, as we trek through the book of Philippians, may we not forget this truth. That the Christian life and all of the fruit that abounds in it is born out of a humility of heart purchased for us by Jesus Christ himself. So that if we are to, to receive the joy and help us pursue Christ and him alone, let us not get caught up in all of the trinkets and joys and glories of this world. But may Jesus Christ inform us as to the true beauty and nature of all those things. And may our joy in those things be found and built upon that foundation, which is Christ. Give us a Christ-like worldview, a lens by which to look at all things. Thus, we can have confidence that it is a true joy. May we find Christ today, Father. If somebody's here that doesn't know Christ, I pray that you use the time together to minister to their heart in such a way that you would show them Christ. And Father, that they would be constrained by love to submit to your Lordship and follow you the rest of their days. Constantly serving, constantly falling, but constantly getting back up as the aid, the comforter comes and pushes us on towards him. Father, we long for that great day when we'll see him and be like him. And finally, give you the worship that is due your name. Until then, Father, may you suffice us with the worship of God in this place and in our daily lives and use it to push us on to that end. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing. Not in me. You remember what that is? 405, I think. Not in me. first and last verse as we sing this meditate upon the words if you're not familiar with it that the Lord may use this truth to also cause